Anyone struggle making decisions? Yeah? Should be all of us. It's really a modern problem. So Cornell University did a study on making decisions, and they found this, that every day you face 226.7, not sure about the .7, decisions about what to eat every day, just on eating, right? 200 years ago, you didn't have those kind of decisions. You had two decisions to make. Number one, is it rotten? Number two, will it kill me? If not, eat it. Go ahead. Right? Now, like, if you went to DB this morning, how many decisions did you face just to order your cup of coffee? What size? What flavor? A mocha? A latte? Should I get a world-destroying straw with that drink or not? (laughs) That's just your coffee. And there's much harder decisions to make. As parents, if you're a new parent, you have kids, and you start to make decisions like, how do I raise this child? What kind of schooling am I going to have for this child? What style will I have, right? There's all kinds of styles when it comes to parenting now. There's the helicopter parent that just hovers over their child, like constantly, like, you know, just everything that they do, the parent is right there with them. That's a style. There's the curling parent, the one that just goes in front of their kid and just sweeps all the danger out in front of them. Oh, little Johnny, don't face any hardship, right? And that's a parenting style. There's the satellite parent, the one that just kind of sits back from a long distance away and just lobs in instructions, like, you know. There's the Black Hawk parent, which is the guy that just goes down, I'm talking to the principal right now. What'd you say to my son? They come in and just terrorize people. And there's the free-range parent. That's me, man. Just let him free-range. It saves on food, just forage. Two, Two choices. Is it rotten? Will it kill you, right? Eat it. Right? You've got to make these decisions. And then, then as your kids mature, they start asking you questions. The biggest, to me, surprise about having kids is how they ask so many questions as they get older. Can I stay at so-and-so's tonight? Can I have a stay the night? Can this person come over? Can I have an iPhone? Once they get the iPhone, can I have Snapchat? Can I have Instagram? Can I have TikTok? Right? Just on and on and on and on. Can I buy a car? Can I buy this car? I want to switch schools. Can I cut my hair? Can I dye my hair? Can I get a piercing? (laughs) My answer, God made you with the correct number of holes. Stick to that. (laughs) My kids are not sticking to my advice already. So they're like, no, he didn't. Okay. Right? All the kids are jumping off a bridge. Can I jump off the bridge? Can I get a tattoo? Like it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And then they become young adults and it's what school do I go to? What career do I choose, right? How do I know who to marry? How do I know if this is the right person? How do you know dad? How do you know mom? How do you know that she was the one? All right, and they get married and they're having kids and how do I invest my money? What kind of career do I have? Should I change my career? Should I buy this house? Should I retire? 
Should I take a second job? Should I move from Grants Pass to Idaho? No. Okay? Grants Pass needs godly people. We need all the help we can get right here, right now. You'll miss out on mission if you leave Grants Pass. There's a lot of mission here. I think just go on and on and on and on and on and on. So Cornell University said this. Every day, the modern American faces 35,000 decisions. It's crazy. Crazy. And we know this. I say face 35,000 decisions because not everybody makes them, right? There's delegators that are like, I don't know, what do you think? And there's avoiders. It's that pile of papers on your desk that you never are going to get to. Those are decisions that you decided, I'm not doing that, right? So we face all these decisions and, and they matter. So Jesus has this great metaphor for decisions. It's in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 3. Verse seven, listen to what he says, how he terms decisions. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What a great metaphor. Jesus talking to a church says decisions, they're like, they're like doors. And there are open doors for you. You know this, when you go through an open door, a decision, like new opportunities present themselves. New ideas, new people, new stuff come in that decision, right? That open door. But you also know this. There are doors in your life that We're open, and you pass them up. And you can look back on your life, and you can see regret for not going through those doors, for missing those opportunities, because once they're gone, you can't get them back. And other people, you think, yeah, I've gone through the wrong door. And when we go through the wrong door, it can take a long time to get out of the mess, the maze of a bad decision. Maybe it was a relationship that maybe you were warned about, but you got into it and it's got you down the wrong direction. And you're trying to figure out, how do I get out of this? This is not a good spot. And it can take you months and years to get out. You bought a house in 2006 at the top and then it became worth almost nothing. And you lost the house and it went into foreclosure. And even to this day, you're paying a higher interest rate on your current home because of the decision going back to 2006. Bad decisions can cast long shadows on your life. Some of us may feel like, man, my, my decider's broken. My choosers, like choosing doors, I don't do a good job of that. How do I make better decisions? I seem to always go in the outdoor or I get stuck in a revolving door of just destructive decisions. How do I learn to go through the right kind of doors? Well, enter the book of James. James, we started him last week. Practical. Second topic he tackles after tough times is how to make decisions. So notice this. James 1 verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Anyone in here lack wisdom? That should be every hand unless you believe your God. We all, in some spot, know I have a decision to make and I want to make it a wise one. I want to go through the right door and not go through the wrong door. Now, this asking can get weird. I met with a lady a number of years ago, and she said this, Matt, I don't make a decision unless I hear from God. I ask for wisdom on every decision I make. I'm like, really? She said, yes, this morning I asked God what color of socks to wear. I went, look at the time. Man, I've got to go. Like, it can get weird. Like, God's trying to raise mature sons, mature daughters, right? They're called huyases in the Greek. He wants us to be these mature kids. So there's a growth to that kind of asking. So I have a six-year-old son, Myron, and I will tell him from time to time, don't wear those socks, They don't match. One's ankle high, one's knee high. You can't go out that way. I will tell him, bro, those pants don't go with that shirt. You got to change one of them. Hey, it's 32 degrees out. You can't wear shorts today. I'm sorry. Right? So I will do that for my six-year-old. I also have an 18-year-old daughter named Carissa. She tells me what to wear now. (laughs) Dad, you're not going to church like that, are you? Well, I was. Why? What's going on? (laughs) It changes, and it's supposed to. It's almost like riding a bike. I've taught my kids how to ride a bike. In the early stages, it was shouting wisdom at them, right? Keep your eyes in front of you. Don't put your foot in the spokes. Keep pedaling. Don't slow down, right? Slow down. But eventually it clicks. And you don't have to yell the same wisdom at them anymore. It's a different kind of wisdom, right? It's no, you may not jump over mom's car. You cannot do that. Right? It changes, and that's supposed to be the way it is. So, yeah, we're supposed to ask, but it's been a growing, maturing kind of asking. So, so here's what James says. If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all. James, we said last week, is very pragmatic. He's not going to waste words. He's simple to the point. He is assuming something in this ask and God will give. And it's this. When you ask somebody for wisdom, what is the obvious next step? Listen. Right? You don't ask and then argue. 
You don't ask, then ignore. You don't ask, then just walk away. If I really want wisdom from somebody, the very next step is to listen. God, speak to me. Well, Matt, how do you listen to God? Well, there's three ways, I think. Number one is scripture. What we're doing right now, you just bathe yourself in scripture. You're listening to the story of redemption. You're allowing it to shape the way that you look at the world. And you keep doing that. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. It says that we can have a renewed mind, and with that renewed mind, you can prove what is God's good and acceptable will. You want to know God's will? You want to know the doors you're supposed to go through? Have your mind renewed by Scripture. You're reading it. You're studying it. It gives you the proper perspective on life, on what's happening. It exposes you to reality, and it shapes your mind in a brilliant way. So Scripture. Number two, the Spirit. Jesus in John 15 and in John 16 says this about the Spirit that He's going to give to us. It will guide us into truth. So there is a way Romans chapter 8 talks about it, Galatians chapter 5 talks about about walking in the Spirit. Like there's a way that you coordinate your life where you start minding what is valuable to God's Spirit and it begins to guide the way that you walk, the steps that you take, the doors that you go in. And you begin to listen to his still small voice and it takes time. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in the Ignorance series. That he will guide you with his Spirit into truth. And there's a third way you hear from God. It's through the saints. And you can read Acts 13 for this. The Apostle Paul, the superhero of the New Testament, the greatest missionary that's ever lived, the guy that takes the gospel out to the known world at that time, he's in church. He hasn't been sent out yet. He doesn't have his missionary yet. He's not the dude yet. And he's in church. It says, as he's in church, a group of men say to him, hey, God's called you to this. That you're supposed to be sent out as a missionary to the world. And they send him out, and the rest is history. It happened in church, in the gathering of the saints, where we're together, studying and talking and listening. Right? How many times that has that happened to you? Where you are praying about wisdom about something. You need an answer. You need to know, do I go through this door or this door? And you go to a Bible study, a men's Friday morning Bible study here, or a Wednesday morning business Bible study here, or if you're a gal, the Monday Bible studies that happen all day here, and you go to that Bible study about this thing that you're questioning, and you get there, and guess what the subject is that they're talking about? The exact thing you need wisdom on. Man, that has happened to me so many times I've stopped counting. It's like God says, I love it when you get together, and when you're together, I'm going to speak through what's happening, that Bible study, that thing, that text, that person. It's brilliant. Maybe my favorite example of this is if you were here in 2009. Remember Grants Pass in 2009, 10 years ago? Brutal here, right? The economy was crashed. We had 12% unemployment in Josephine County. It's under 5% right now. So there's all these people that I would be praying with and talking with and counseling that were like, I can't get a job. I got laid off from my job. The guy sold his business. He moved to California. What am I supposed to do? And one of them was this guy. I really loved him. He was a great guy. Wife, three kids. And so I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. But I'll pray for you. He decides to volunteer. We were doing a Christmas thing out at RCC. He volunteered like a 40-hour week just saying, man, I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to go out there and set up this holiday celebration. 
goes out there the whole week. The following Sunday, he grabs me, he and his wife and his kids. He goes, Matt, you wouldn't believe this. I was there with all the guys and we're working and there's a business owner that saw me. He saw me there every single day. He said, hey, you want a job? And I got a job. How awesome is that? And then I love this. His wife said, yeah, I was the one that told him to go volunteer. <laughs> Listen to the saint of your wife, boys. <laughs> it just happens naturally. We're around the saints. We're in the community of God, and God speaks where two or more are gathered brilliantly. You listen. I think a lot of us, myself included, we get the asking really good. We'll pray, we'll ask for wisdom, but I don't think we get the listening so good. I don't. I'll just move on. I won't think about it. I won't go to Scripture. I won't pray God's Spirit... Show me today. I won't be in the saints and asking for counsel that way. I don't listen very well. So James is assuming if you ask, you'll also listen. Do we listen? I think we need to listen. But right after he says all that, James gives this qualifier, verse 8. But let him ask in faith, with no doubt. How hard is that? Matt, that doesn't make sense to me. I need wisdom in a situation because I don't know what to do. I'm doubting what to do. But the only way that I get wisdom is if I don't have any doubt. That sounds like a catch-22 to me. What in the world? I can't do that. I always have doubt. Yeah, me too. So what's being said by this right here? What's happening right here? If you are a person that has doubt, which would be 99.99% of us, listen to this great little story. Jesus is out preaching. And this man who had this son comes up to him. And this son of this man, he needed wisdom on his son. Because there was a spirit that would grab a hold of his son and literally throw him into the fireplace. And so this dad, for probably years at this point, had been praying and trying to figure out, what do I do with my son? And so he brings his son to Jesus. He says, Jesus, can you heal my son? Explains the situation to Jesus. And Jesus answers very much like James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Jesus looks at this man and says, I can heal him if you believe. And so the man responds like this. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 24. The man responds, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a great text, right? Who, who doesn't feel that way? I believe. On one side, yes, I believe. But gosh, I have all these doubts. Some of us need to get that tattooed on your forearm. Mark 9, 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, what does Jesus do in that situation? Does he say, well, come back when you got that figured out. That's a major problem right there. Either you believe or you don't believe. You sound insane to me. What does Jesus do? He heals the man's son. I don't think that's what this is saying right here. 
It's not you can't have any doubt or you can't have any unbelief or God's not going to work. It's something else. Because if you keep reading down what you see, in verse 8 it says this. The one that doesn't ask in faith is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does it mean to be double-minded? I think it means this. It's you are praying not because you want God's will or God's way. You're praying because you want to check what I call the God box. I prayed, I did what I was supposed to, and now I'm just going to go do what I want. There's some people that do that. They're not really looking for God's wisdom. They're just saying, I just want to get God off my back so I can do what I want to do. But I'm going to warn you, God will let you go through the wrong door. Do you know that? He will let you go through the wrong door. You can write down Psalm 106, verse 15. It says this, God gave them their requests, but sent leanness to their soul. And it's talking about a story in history where the Israelites were demanding, God, give us this. And God finally says, okay, fine, you can have it. But it's going to lean out your soul. You ever demanded something from God? I have to have this. And you got it. And then you regretted that you got it. Could be a relationship. I got to have this. Boyfriend, girlfriend. Could be a job. Could be a house. Could be anything like that. And you just demand God. And God says, okay, fine, you can have it. And then your soul just gets lean. Beware. It's double-minded. You're not really wanting God's will or God's way. You're wanting your way, and you just want to check the God box. The way we're supposed to pray is like Jesus, who says, not my will, but thy will be done. God, I'm here not for you to serve me and make my thing come true. I'm here to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that when I do that, all the other things that I really want will be added to me. Matthew 6, 33. That singleness of mine. That's the way we're supposed to pray. That's how we're supposed to ask. God, how do I fit into your kingdom? How can I be an ambassador of you in my job, in my home, in my community? How can I be a witness of your goodness? That's the way to pray. That singleness of mine. Right? So follow the context just for a second as we get to this last section. You got James, says hello. You're having tough times, count it all joy, it matures you. Right after tough times, he says, hey, you need wisdom? And usually when we're in tough times, what are you praying for? Wisdom, right? That makes sense to me, okay. So, hello, tough times, pray for wisdom, your Father will give it to you, he's generous. And then, verses 9, 10, and 11, he has this warning on wealth. Why that context? Why that thought process? Why after tough times, wisdom, does James include this warning on wealth? Let me ask you a question, because I think it makes sense. If you're in a hard time right now, do you think money would help you out of that problem? If you had a choice right now, if you're in a hard time, if you had a choice, and it was between wisdom or wealth, 
Which one would you choose? I know it's church, and it's hard to be honest on things like these. We want to choose the Jesus answer. I would choose Jesus. No, really, really think. Would money help me out of this situation? Because I guarantee there's a bunch of hard times where we say, if I just had a little bit more money, I would not have these hard times. So James is hitting it on the nose right here. But is it right? Does money help us out of the real tough times of life? Health. Does money help with health? There's this interesting group of diseases. They're called first world diseases. Do you know why they're called first world diseases? Because only people that have money get them. Heart disease, diabetes, stroke, certain kinds of cancer, gout. It's from a bad diet and a sedentary lifestyle that people in third world countries can't have. They got to work. They're sweating. They have that redemptive quality of working out and not being sedentary. Right? So, mm got to be careful. Does money help you out of depression? Anybody know any depressed rich people? I know a few. Does money help you out of loneliness? That sometimes it is wealth that drives away people. Like sometimes the happiest, most hospitable people are poor people because they know the value of others and they put it into that. So you got to be very careful, right? Life is the great equalizer. That's what James is getting at here. Beware when you begin to think money's going to make it all right. Money is not the antidote to adversity. It's not, okay? So here's what James says. Here's the warning. The rich and the famous fade away. They're like a flower that was cut. It ends up in your compost bucket that you feed to your Nigerian dwarf goat. That's a rich person. How funny is that? So be careful of money. Don't people fade? Doesn't wealth fade? Don't we forget about them? So if you can go back in your mind a little bit, back to 1967. In 1967, there were two superpowers in the world, right? The United States, and what was the other one? USSR, right? The big two. I grew up in that, man. I remember hiding under my desk, you know, that whole thing when I went to school because of a nuclear attack. Right? Those are the two players, the, the heads of state of those two countries were the most important people in our world. Who can name the prime minister of the USSR from 1967? Not the president, the prime minister. My guess is you don't know. How about, can anyone today name the prime minister of Russia? Putin's the president. The prime minister is Dmitry Medvedev, right? Super empowered, powerful person. Guess what? We don't even know who he is. They fade. Remember Steve Urkel? If you're my age, family matters, right? Remember the Urkel dance? It was bigger than flossing is today. That was it. Everybody's Urkel dancing. Where's Steve Urkel? He lives in Pasadena and he works at a McDonald's. I just made that up. I don't actually know. I mean, who knows? <laughs> It just fades. So James is warning us, look out. Money promises what only wisdom can provide. So be aware of that. But there's a second problem with money. We'll get to it in chapter four. 
So what James says in chapter four is this, look out when you've got wealth because you stop looking to God. Money begins to dim and temper the drive and desire for wisdom from God. That's why Jesus says, it's Matthew 19, verse 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Right? And there's all this nonsense about a gate that was called the needle gate. There's no such thing. I've been to Israel twice. No. He's literally saying it's very hard to get a camel through the eye of a needle. How do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? A blender. That's the one way. Okay? I'm serious. Like, Jesus is saying, that's impossible. It's impossible. Because wealth begins to interfere and dim the innate desire we have for God. Like this was brought home to me a dozen years ago. A good friend, Billy Graham Palos, who's... Uh, leading this massive ministry in India. He came over and visited us, and we were hosting him. I spent, uh, went, made five trips to India. Love him. He's awesome. He's here. He's staying with a friend. I go over to visit him. We're hanging out. And uh, the host family, the wife is going to drive to Portland and back with her kids. And so Billy said, well, let's pray for her on this trip. Now, if I would have prayed for her, I would have prayed, God, just bless her and, and keep her safe and uh, help the drive to go good. May she have patience with these four kids in the car. May they not destroy the car. May French fries not be squashed into every single part of the car. You know, just the normal stuff you'd pray for here. Here's how Billy prayed. He said, Father, we pray that these tires would hold air all the way to Portland and back. We pray that the roads would be safe that there wouldn't be potholes in these roads, that, that the struts wouldn't break from the potholes. May the struts be really strong too. We pray for the motor. We ask that this motor would start and it would run well. It would run all the way up there and run all the way back. He just went through over that entire car. And when he's done, I sat there and thought, I have never prayed that way. I have never prayed for my tires. Because I trust Michelin. Right? I've never prayed for the roads because I trust ODOT. Mostly trust ODOT. <laughs> I have never prayed for my struts because I trust Les Schwab. I have prayed for my motor because I drive a Volkswagen bus, so God, please, can I get home today? In India, you have no choice but to trust God because their tires are retreads of retreads. Their roads, I've been on them. They're insane. There are lakes in the middle of those roads. And there's, there's people, I have seen people dead on the side of the road in India. Like it is common, it is dangerous. Their vehicles are prehistoric. And maybe, just maybe, the reason why there is this massive, incredible work happening in southeastern India is because they trust God. They have no other trust. They trust God. It might be like Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, and some trust in horsemen. Some trust in Les Schwab, and some trust in Michelin, and some trust in Toyota. But we remember the name of Yahweh, our God. They trust in God, and God does great things for them. It's not a sin to be wealthy, but it's a warning be careful. 
you still need wisdom. You still need the humility to trust God no matter what your bank account says, okay? So James here, awesome, right? So good. He's pragmatic, practical. So let me conclude by giving you a practical grid, a lifestyle, because we're calling James a joy-wise life, a lifestyle that helps you choose the right doors. And here's the one that I use. Number one, be generous. This comes from chapter one, verse five. It says this, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Be generous. If you're a single lady in here and you're dating a guy and he is stingy, run from that man. He will make your family miserable. I do enough marriage counseling. My goodness, stingy men make families miserable. And I'm not talking about how much money he has. That's not what I'm talking about. There's an attitude of generosity that the money I have, I'm stewarding it and I'm using it on other people. Not, there are rich people can be the stingiest people of all. This has nothing to do with the amount of money you have. It's an attitude, the way that you treat the waitress, the way that you treat your sweetheart. Are they generous to you? Run from stingy men. Parents, be generous. And this is what I mean. There is a way to parent out of fear. Where we become afraid of everything. Like, you say no to your kids all the time, not because it's not the right door for them to go through, but because you're afraid of what might happen to them. So you're afraid of the world. No, they can't go there because they might be molested or something. There's just this giant fear that is, and it governs really the way that you parent. So you say no all the time. I think a much better perspective is what I call the Genesis 1 perspective. That God, our good, generous, heavenly Father, creates a beautiful place for you and me to live in called Eden. And he says this, eat of every tree that you want. The thousands and thousands and thousands of fruit trees, eat from them all. There's just one. There's just one no. Yes to all these, just one no. Man, that's how I want to live. I want to look at the world through generous eyes. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. I want to parent that way, which means this. I want to say to my kids, yes, as often as I can, so that when I say no, they understand it matters. Yes to the thousands of trees. Yeah, no to this one tree. This was brought home to me a couple of years ago. I had this this 16-year-old foster girl who came up to me, and it was after a service, and she said, can I talk to you? She knows we do foster care, and she knows I knew the family that they were with. She's like, can I talk to you? I said, sure, let's talk. She goes, first of all, I don't like church. I'm like, well, thank you. It's a great way to start a conversation with somebody. Kind of what I've given my life to, but okay, let's go. So she just began to say, um, I've been to 12 foster homes. This is the 12th one I'm in. And she said, I can't stand it. I said, why? She said, well, I'll give you an example. They're not going to let me go trick-or-treating this year. They're not going to let me celebrate Halloween. They don't like it, whatever the reason is. She said, I have, cel- I have never missed a year of going out trick-or-treating with my friends. And she was mad at that. She goes, I don't understand it. 
I'll be home at their curfew. I'm going to be with my friends. I'm not going to do anything I'm not supposed to do. I'm just going to go out. It's a fun thing for me to do, to dress up and go out and trick-or-treating. And I said, sometimes people draw the wrong lines in the sand. That's just what they do. Parents, where are you drawing the lines in the sand? I have a saying, and it's swallow the gnats and ride the camel. And that's one of my philosophies on life. Find out the things that are just little gnats. Like, they don't matter. Swallow a thousand of those. Why? So the one camel that you say, I'm riding this thing, matters then. As a parent, I want to say yes. Swallow as many gnats as I possibly can so that I can say to my kids, I'm not a fun hater. I want you guys to have a great time. But this is a camel. This is a big one. I'm going to make a big deal out of this. Say yes as often as you can so that your no's matter, parents. Be generous. Number two, be a gentleman. So if you skip forward to chapter two, verse eight, James summarizes the, all the law in the Old Testament. He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. You want to open doors for yourself? Open doors for someone else. Be a gentleman. Open a door for someone else. Make their dreams come true. Start saying, how can I use my capital, my resources, my time? How can I do that and make open doors for you? Because it guides you. It's a principle that just expands you and you get new perspectives. I'm up here right now because somebody did that for me. So the year was 1998. I had taught the Bible three times to a sum total of 10 people. So like three in one Bible study, three in another Bible study, four in another Bible study. And then all of a sudden, John Corson, pastor of Applegate Christian Fellowship, said, hey, I want you to teach Tuesday morning devotions at our church. And it was 70 people there. On top of that, the, the whole service was broadcast on the number one radio station in Roosh, Oregon. A lot of pressure there. So I was like, oh man, what an opportunity. Okay, great, let's do this. And John had this way of coming in halfway through praise and then just saying, hey, I got it today. And he'd go up and, you know, do a really good job. So I'm, I'm there, I'm waiting. And all of a sudden, halfway through praise, John walks in. I'm like, okay, I'm off the hook. Great, this is awesome. I don't have to do this. But then praise stops. He looks at me, he goes, you're up. I'm like, oh no. If you could hear what I prayed as I walked up, I prayed for a tornado or an earthquake or a tsunami. You just choose, God. I'm leaving it up to you, your wisdom, but bring something. I taught that. Did an adequate job. And then he gave me more opportunity. He spent his 25 years his, of, of capital and investment and says, here you go. Here's an open door. Make open doors for other people. Be a gentleman. Open doors. How can I help this person make the right decision? How can I use my capital and allow them the same opportunities that's been allowed for me. It's a lifestyle that helps you make wise choices. Number three, be chill. Big one. Philippians chapter four, verse six. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will keep your heart 
How brilliant is that verse? Be chill. I have a saying written at home. Haste always leads to waste. You want to make a bad decision? Don't be chill. Be anxious. That's how you make bad decisions. So here's part of the philosophy of life for me. And this was given to me a long time ago before I was a pastor. I worked for a company, big company. They had money. Um, I went down to San Diego for this, this conference down there. I took my wife, my two kids. The owner of the company was down there as well. And he had this big yacht in the San Diego Bay. So he's like, hey, tomorrow, you want to grab your family and come out with me on my yacht? Yes, I do. I think I do. Yes. And they said, hey, do you want to drive my yacht tomorrow? Yes, I do. I do want to do that too, right? I'm like, yeah, I'll drive your yacht. So we get out there. It's this fancy, awesome yacht. And we go out in, into the San Diego Bay. And like, we're, we're in the middle of the bay. He's like, okay, Matt, come here. Drive this thing. I think he wanted to hang out. He was tired of me. I think you have to ca- have a captain's license too, but that didn't matter. So he's like, take over. And so I'm like, all right. And I get up there. I'm like, what? Because here's the problem. There are 7,000 other boats out there at the same time. I'm like, what about all these other boats, man? There's like no lanes. There's no stoplights. This is insane. How do I know what to do? This is what he told me. It was so good. He said, it's easy. You maintain your present speed and heading. I said, that's it? That's it. He took off. So I maintained 100 knots into an aircraft carrier. (laughs) Come on. No, you can't be freaking out about every other boat. You just maintain, this is where I'm going. And then it lets every other boat know, oh, he's going this way and he's going this fast. That's what you're supposed to do. You be chill, right? Be anxious for, what does that mean? Who would like to live a life like that? Man, be anxious for nothing. My prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And you get this shalom in your heart. Well, Matt, what do I do when I'm just maintaining? I got to make a decision. What do I do? Be planning. Just because you're waiting on the Lord, you're chilling, you don't know what to do, doesn't mean you can't be planning. Read Nehemiah chapter 2. Such a great story. So Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is broken down and it's a bummer and it's just his heart is tore up by it. And so he is the cupbearer to the king, a very important position. And one day the king notices, bro, you look bummed out. What's wrong? And so Nehemiah tells him, how can I be joyful when the city of my fathers is broken down? And so the king says, what do you want to do? And Nehemiah just lays out a plan. I want to go there. I want to rebuild the wall. I need a million dollars from you. I need some people from you. I need a letter from you. He has an entire plan. Why? Because he'd been planning. Imagine if Nehemiah had not been planning, the king's like, what would you want to do? I don't know. Let me think about it for a while. That door would have shut. Then he was planning. So that when the king said, what do you want to do? He could express his heart's desire. Man, start planning. Get a piece of paper, write on it. Not my will, but thy will be done. And then just plan. God, this is what the plans I have for my life. Would you open the right doors? Would you correct me if my plan is wrong? Man, be planning. So when our king says, hey, Matt, what do you want to do? This is what I want to do. Okay, go. Do it. Be planning.
Then lastly and finally, be trusting. Joshua chapter one. Moses has died. One of the premier big dudes of the Old Testament. He dies. Joshua takes his shoes. Talk about a tough position to fill. And so in chapter one, God begins to speak to Joshua and he says this. Listen, Joshua, everywhere the sole of your foot touches, I'm giving you that land. How cool is that? Joshua, I'm going to do for you in four minutes what for 40 years you could not do. You've been waiting 40 years. Nothing's happened. Boom, I'm going to change it like that. Do you know that God can do that? He can do more in four minutes than anything you and I could do for 40 years. And then he says this, verse 9. Only, here's your job, don't be afraid. Be strong and be courageous. Trust me. Maybe the whole point of all this, praying for wisdom, walking this thing out, the, the, the symbiotic relation, maybe the whole point of it is to get us to be the kind of people that say, God, we trust you. We trust that you are good and that you're generous and that you'll give us the keys to the kingdom. We trust you. Do you trust God? You could work this thing in reverse. When you trust God, you will be playing. God's going to do great things. When you trust God, you're going to be chill, right? Because he's got it. When you trust God, you're going to be opening doors for other people because that's what he's done for you. When you trust God, you'll be generous because you know, ha, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You'll do all these things. Do you trust God in your life? It works backwards, I think. I don't know if I can trust God. Every day we take communion, every Sunday. Guess what the communion table tells you? You can trust him. He gave everything for you. You can trust him. He gave his best for you. And if he gave you his best, which he did his life, you can trust him with the rest. So Jesus, as we go to the table today, may we be a people that put our trust firmly in you. May we see the incredible work that you did on Calvary for every single one of us, a demonstration of your love for us. And may we know today, right now, that the thoughts that you have for us, the plans that you have for us, are to bring us to a glorious end, to make each one of us into kings and queens that rule and reign with you forever, as the book of Revelation promises us. That's your plan. So may we eat and we drink trust. And I ask this in your name. Amen.